again to another edition of Locked In Science. We are still locked in, aren't we, guys? Yeah, we are. We are. I mean, you know, some people say that um, after six weeks it starts getting a bit more lonely. Um, I can probably vouch for that. No. <laughs> Luckily, I've got Locked In Science and I get to discuss, uh, you know, all the wonderful science news of the week with you two. I was actually reading um, about uh, third yeah. quarter syndrome, which people on space missions and uh, in Antarctic missions and things get, but it's actually related to the length of their mission. It's not a particular length of time. So if it's an eight-week mission, it's at six weeks, and if it's an eight-month mission, it's at six months. So, yeah, but it just people get a bit aggro and antsy about three quarters of the way through but we don't know how long we've got so we'll just keep making uh science radio for everyone to listen to <laughs> that's right yeah yeah we don't know if we're in third quarter yet do we no no um you know, there's, there's been some positive signs but um yeah we, we don't really know and it you know depending where people are their state governments are making different decisions about things but at this point we are still making science radio from our very own homes so that you can listen to it in your homes. And on the show this week, Claire, what have you got for us? Well, we've heard a lot about one particular bad microbe, um, the SARS-CoV-2 microbe, obviously, for the last... Um, it's been, you know, a, uh, daily updates for... I can't even remember how long... Um, but what I've been thinking about recently is how that is going to change our relationship with all the other microbes in the world. What's going to happen at the other end of this? And are we going to come out, um, you know, more microbe averse and using more disinfectants and that sort of thing? Or are things going to go back to normal? So I'm going to be taking a look at, um, well, really some microbes that we are still using as hobbies. Um, I think you can probably think of a few people who might have been on social media mm. who are using um, maybe microbes to create beer or bread. So I'm going to be taking a look at that um, this week and how it relates to the good and the bad of the microbe world. The good, the bad and the ugly of the microbes. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, great. And Chris? Well, yes, I have... You know, being stuck at home with nothing but um, homemade beer and bread. Um, <laughs> actually, a little have bit you, more. Have you tried? I tried both. Great. Um, can't wait, but, I can't wait to talk about this with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The beer didn't work so well, but more on that later. Um, but something that I have purchased is something that supplies some of my, uh, another one of my famous at-home DIY physics experiments. Famous the world over. Yeah, yeah. Now, this one is actually a bit of a lockdown special because we couldn't normally do this kind of thing in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne as it involves us sitting here with a glass of wine each. Hooray. Have you guys heard of the phenomenon tears of wine? I've, I've, seen, no. I've seen people cry after too much, but that's not what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it could be related. So these are, these are little droplets that will form on the glass above the surface of the wine. They're also known um, in the trade as the legs of the wine. Oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry. I must be in the trade. I only ever have known them as the legs. Okay. Well, clearly, I must be in the wine trade. Clearly. You're in, so so in when, the people, when people say um, it's got legs, are they talking about that or is it something else altogether? 
Uh, it's not what ZZ Top meant, I don't think. But um, <laughs> but anyway, look, this is a phenomenon that um, physicists have known about for years, have been studying for years, because they are known for their excellent dinner party conversation. So, of course, they're going to talk about what's going on with a glass of wine. Um, but there was a new paper published in March this year that gave some further insights into how these tiers of wine form. So I'm going to be looking at that. And you're welcome to play along at home. Um, however, I think if you are one of our school student listeners, maybe ask your parents before raiding their liquor cabinet. Um, right. Yeah. So we've got uh, fermentation and fermented products uh, all, all the time on Lost in, Locked in Science this week. So stay tuned. have been it's a phenomenon with a good vintage it's been known about for centuries now what is it though um, in fact Chris, are, can you can you clearly explain what you're talking about here okay so what happens is when you certain wines um they will form around the glass above the liquid there will be some small drops formed it's kind of a, a ring of you see a, a thin ring of liquid and that drops like tears come down from it so you can sort of see lines. They're almost like translucent lines yeah, that, yeah. That, are, that are coming down from the uppermost part of where the liquid was. Yeah, something like that. Now, as I said, look, this has been known about for, for centuries. There was actually uh, allegedly a line in the Bible that mentions it. Um, it talks about the wine moving by itself. It says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his colour in the cup, when it moveth itself all right. So that's some people saying, Oh, it's because the wine is moving. That's the tears. Um, but that line is also useful because it's kind of a clue to what's going on with the, the wine. Because you're experts, you're people in the trade, like like Claire, who yeah, yeah, know yeah. The, the legs of wine, often think, oh, this is a sign that the wine is really good. That's what, I, what I've heard, what yeah. um, people in the biz tell me. But really, all it means is that there is high alcohol content. Oh, doesn't that mean good, Chris? Well, okay, that could be <laughs> construed as good. Um, it could also be explained why it gives you tears as well. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of depth to this. There's, there's a yeah. lot going on here. But look, the basic phenomenon is known as the Marangoni effect. It's named after the Italian physicist Carlo Marangoni, who actually did his thesis, his doctoral thesis on this topic, way back in 1865. Wow. Yeah. That was a while ago. That was a while ago. That was... Just that. as an aside, oh. could you find um, his published work online? Oh, I haven't looked it up. I don't speak oh, okay. Italian. I don't read Italian. I don't read 19th century <laughs> Italian, I'm sure. Oh, he didn't He didn't translate it? Into modern English? I don't think so. Ah. Oh. 
But look, what it means, what the Marangoni effect is, when you have two regions uh, in a fluid with different surface tension, then the liquid will flow from the lower surface tension to the higher surface tension. Because the higher surface tension is kind of pulling on it more. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like a potential sense? thing. Yeah, it, it forms a sort of a potential. Like this, this effect can be seen uh, in lots of places. It is actually used in manufacturing. It can be seen apparently in soap films or surfactant films, like a detergent, like form, soap forms of film. Um, what it happens there is uh, if the, the film thins out for some reason, then that reduces the surface tension in that part. and So it increases the surface tension in that part. And so it the fluid will go and fill up the thinning out bit. So it makes the, um, the film stable by, you know, it evens out the areas of surface tension. So it's a nice little effect that it has kind of in a practical sense, but also works well with wine because alcohol has a lower surface tension than water. So what happens, I haven't, I've got an empty wine glass here. But you do, I can, I can verify that. I am, I'm going to be using this later on, but when you have, say, you know, when you have a liquid in a container and it forms a meniscus where it kind of climbs up the edge of the, of the glass. Yes. Yes. So that bit where it climbs up the edge of the glass, um, that is thinner than the rest of it. And so the alcohol in that section will evaporate more than in right. the main part. Mm-hmm. And alcohol has a lower surface tension than, than water. So what this means is there is more water around the edge than there is in the middle. And so it will move towards the area of higher surface tension, which is around the edge. And this causes it effectively to climb up the sides of the glass. You got that? Yeah. Yeah. But then the question remained, why does it form these tiers? Now, this is basically the subject of the paper that was published in March uh, in the journal Physical Review Fluids, a team from the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, they did some, they did a lot of maths, a lot of partial differential equations. Uh, and they did some experiments. They used different kinds of glasses, like conical glasses they found were really thick, like a martini glass kind of thing. Mm. And they used, well, they used port wine um, because that was a fairly high alcohol content. And they found that... I hope they used, you know, they didn't use conical flasks, just conical glasses. Well, a conical flask goes around the wrong way, doesn't it? I know, I know. But also, never drink out of your labware, am I right? Yeah, yeah, it's a bad practice. Well, you clean it, don't you? It's a bad practice. I don't expect physicists to understand, but it is a bad practice. Yeah, we don't we don't deal with that kind of thing. No, no. <laughs> we'll drink out of anything, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so what they found happens is that, and we're gonna we're gonna try and repeat this in a bit because they said you know they gave instructions for how to repeat this phenomenon at the dinner table is the way they put it. Um, <laughs> it uh, the basically the wine travels up the glass in a wave. It's specifically what they call a reverse under compressive shock wave. Under compressive. Under compressive. So it sounds a bit under impressive. A compressive wave basically is when you have the stuff in, you have a wave front, the stuff in the bulk of the wave behind the wave front is moving faster than the stuff in front. And so that's kind of pushing forward like that. Right? Right. Yep. And under compressive in this situation, essentially the, the stuff behind the wave front is moving slower than the wave front. And so it kind of thins out. So you actually get this, that's why you get this kind of band moving up the glass because it's thinning out behind the wave front. Right. There are uh, waves you don't want to surf at the beach, right? No, that would that would probably, yeah, do you some damage, I reckon. Yeah, you would kind of end up dumped into the sand or something like that. 
So one of the characteristics of a reverse under compressive shockwave, as you probably realize, is that there, if any perturbations or imperfections will go through the wave instead of being carried along with it. So these imperfections become the tears that then drip down from the wave front. Okay, right. so we're going to try and repeat this. I hope you've got your, oh, your yeah, wine at the ready. ready. Um, I am going to actually... I'm actually at going the to ready. Use, good, thank you. Um, Claire, I can see you've got a, a nice glass there. Nice glass of red yep. uh, Shiraz. I'm actually going to use some sherry. No, sorry, brandy. Brandy, sorry. Um, because this has like 37% alcohol. If this doesn't work, nothing will. Um, now, so the instructions, I I didn't give you instructions before we started this, so I can see you've already broken it. Um they said to they say to pour a bit of the wine into the glass and then put a lid on it. The reason you put the lid on it is, and this may not be a problem for you, Claire, is to stop it evaporating too much because what you do, first of all, you try to have to wet the glass. So you swirl it around so that the glass is actually wet because the wave works better when it's wet than when it's dry. Swirling, swirling. Swirling. Yep. And then you yep. let it sit for a bit. Okay. Sitting. Okay. It yeah, is now sitting. Seconds. Now, I can't say this is always going to 100% work, but we're going to try it. And then the idea is if you take the lid off, at least in my situation, then what you'll find is that you will have, the evaporation will start and you'll get your tears. Now, in my, with my um, sherry, I'm going to hold that up to the camera. I don't know if you guys can see that. No, you can't. Oh, yeah, a little, yeah. You can see the the tears running down from a, a, a ridge, like a circle that's around the top of the wine. Yes. Yeah. Like a high watermark almost. You see all this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a high watermark. Yeah. Um, how's yours going, Claire? Yep. Yep. I've got some tears and a high watermark. Excellent. Excellent. What, and what um, alcohol concentration do you know on your wine? 15. 15. That should be good enough. Yeah. Excellent. Stu, did you get anything there going uh, on with yeah, yours? Uh, yeah, a little bit, but uh, I think mine's only about 12%. Like I said, this is kind of used by people to, to um, say, the measure the quality of wine, allegedly. Essentially, it's measuring, like I said, just the alcohol content. If you think that's a good quality wine is high alcohol, then good on you. If that's what you're looking for, it is a way to do test the alcohol content. But essentially, it's something you can try at home. If you're home bored um, and all you've got is wine, well, you probably don't have much of a problem. But here's something you can do with it just in case. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
So the bad microbes seem to be getting all the attention right now. Well, one virus in particular does. Uh, but yes, Chris. Are viruses microbes? I've still been wondering. That is a good question. And I couldn't get total clarity on that. Some, um, some journals said that they were microbes. They're not microorganisms because they're not technically alive, but they are microbes. And others said, well, because they're not technically alive, they're not microbes because microbes is just short for microorganisms. So it seems to be a bit of a split on that. Okay. I'm going to use the word microbe as just something that is small. Quite small. understanding of where viruses fit is that they are reduced versions of what used to be something like bacteria way, way back early on, and they've lost a lot of their functionality. Like, do you remember when we did the story about the smallest animal and the smallest animal turns out to be a tiny little parasite? It's lost a lot of function and all that's left is the parasitic part of the animal that feeds off another animal. Viruses are kind of like parasitic microbes that don't have all of the functions of other microbes so they did originate as microbes and they've lost a lot of um you know functions that they can't fulfill for themselves anymore but they are they still obviously interact with with microorganisms as well um anyway so i have been i have been thinking about what effect this covid19 pandemic will have on our relationship with microbes in general, uh, will it lead to a world that is much more obsessed with disinfectants and bleaching, antibacterials, um, or are people going to go back to their normal behaviours pre-COVID-19 pandemic? Um, And what effect will it have on the good symbiotic communities of the worlds of the microbiome out there? I don't know. What do you guys think? I I think that people are getting... In terms of disinfectants, um, aside from drinking them, as recommended <laughs> by certain world leaders, um, people have been getting more hardcore about those. Germophobic. Anyway, Germophobic, mm. yeah. Um, so I think we'll go back to what we were, is my feeling, but yeah. it is already pretty germophobic. Yeah, and I think we're going to be increasing our hand washing for a really long time, which isn't such a bad thing because, you know, it's not just COVID-19 that's transmitted yeah. via, um, you know, us via us touching things and touching our faces. It's a whole lot of other um, flus and um, rotaviruses and all the, all the rest. As we've, as we've um, always said on but this show, on the- is that one of the best ways to prevent those diseases is wash your hands with soap. It's, it's just a really old-fashioned mm-hmm. but very, yeah. very... Uh, effective way of controlling contagious diseases. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so maybe we will be washing, continuing to wash our hands to a greater degree. Um, But on the other um, hand, microbial hand, so to speak, there is a trend, which I'm sure you've all noticed. Um, It's a huge surge in the number of people using microbes to make food during this isolation period. Um, I am, of course, talking about the sourdough makers and the home brewers and the kombucha brewers, um, the sauerkraut fermenters, yeah, um, the kimchi. I've got some kimchi, you know, okay, full disclosure there. Yeah, I did, yeah. Is it good? Uh, Yeah, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. um, (laughs) Um, Chris, 
I know <laughs> this, this is a glowing endorsement. Own... Well, you know, I think I've probably got a long way to to go. Do you with, make your own vinegar, tea. Claire? Sorry, I no, don't. Do you? It seems really gross. You've got to keep a crock of rotting vegetables in your kitchen while it goes into vinegar. So, sounds a bit <laughs> yuck to me. But there you go. Yeah. Um. But Chris has been making his homebrew and his bread, is that right? Yeah, I've been actually doing a bit. I haven't done sourdough bread yet. I've just been doing normal yeast uh, bread. And that's, that's worked okay. Um, mm-hmm. I did try a batch of homebrew that something didn't work out. There's a weird taste to it. I mean, I've had success with this before. <laughs> it's been fine. But there's something wrong with this. Uh, a friend got the supplies for me from um, a store his, ba- his batch also turned out bad. I think it might be the yeast that we got. Right. So I want to know what you can tell me about these microbes because I think they've let me down in this particular uh, instance. That's very that's very interesting. I know home brewing is going gangbusters at the moment. There is a lot of people who are doing a lot of home brewing and a brewing friend, John, who we've had on this show, um, he's uh, he's seen a whole lot of um, people. You know, their their homebrew businesses just um, just boom in this in this time. But um, yeah, those particular microbes um, are different to you know the other microbes that we'll be talking about, but. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, let's stick for the moment with sourdough because every second social media post you see now, it's, it's all about sourdough starters. Everyone's getting on the sourdough train. Um, and, uh, and if you go to the supermarket, most things are back on the shelf, but oh. flour is still one thing that is missing from the supermarket yeast shelf. Yeast is so, missing from the supermarket and shelf. And yeast as yeah. well, yeah. Um, so uh, one thing – so, yeah, let's talk about sourdough. And to make sourdough, you don't need to buy a yeast from the supermarket, so it's probably good now that you cannot um, acquire one from the supermarket. You need – to get yourself a sourdough starter. And this isn't something, um, you know, that you buy from the supermarket. You're either given one of these and some sourdough bakers around the world have starters that have been going for generations. Many of them have names. Um, many of them have stories. A lot of them are older than all of us combined, I'm sure. Um, but you don't need to be given one. You can also create your own uh, fairly easily and have the flavors of your local neighborhood and have the flavors of your local neighborhood that's right because the microbes that are in um, that you know inoculate your starter come from you <laughs> and the air and your house and your local neighborhood exactly they say you um, are what you eat perhaps what you eat is you <laughs> So, yeah, to make a sourdough starter, all you need um, is flour, water and um, microbes in your neighborhood. Um, So when you add the flour and water, over time, a mix of bacteria and fungi begin to both inhabit and multiply in the starter and create a completely unique community. It's unlike any other sourdough starter in the world and will go on to produce a bread that tastes unique and different, different to anything else. Um, the bacteria and the fungi, they come from the environment. Um, they can also come from the hands of the baker. 
they can come from the air um, and they also come from the flower itself Um, both the outside of the flower and the inside of the seeds contain these bacteria Mm. that um, that go on to make the starter Uh, and broadly speaking there are many different species of microbes that live in a starter but in general they can be put into two camps so you've got your wild yeasts which are fungi as you know and produce uh, the carbon dioxide that you need to make your bread rise and then you have lactobacillus which produces both lactic acid and acetic acid Um, now these acids they um they give the sourdough the sourness you know because acid tastes sour doesn't it Exactly. Acid yeah. tastes sour. And the more um, and the more acid the lactobacillus produces, um, yeah, the more acid that the starter gets or the bread gets, the lower the pH gets. And what's what's created is this environment that sort of excludes other microbes. So um, those microbes that don't like such an acidic environment um, can't thrive. But yeasts, these particular types of yeasts that exist um, within your starter, they're acid tolerant. So, um, so they can keep thriving and producing carbon dioxide um, in this environment and create that, create your um, delicious sourdough bread that's like yummy and sour and um, has lots of holes in it from the carbon dioxide. It's kind of chewy. It's kind of chewy. It is kind of chewy, isn't it? It's a lot, it's a lot more it. chewy and, uh, and sort so of, I s- um, you know, t- tastier than your average loaf of tip top from the supermarket, that's for sure. <laughs> Agreed. So I say lactobacillus and yeast, but there are many, many different species of these microbes that have been found in sourdough starters across the world. A survey of sourdough starters, starters performed by... The University of South Carolina State found several hundred species of yeast and um, several hundred species of lactobacillus, all related, um, all and all in different sourdoughs. So different microbes were present in different regions, and um, interestingly, they found that um, there was one particular strain of fungi that was only found in sourdough starters from Australia. So it makes you think that maybe Australia, you know, from this one species of yeast has a completely, you know, has a different flavor to it um, than you would experience anywhere else in the world. So, yeah, it's fascinating to think that there are, you know, microbes, not only that that the ones that we focus on that are um, producing and creating a lot of havoc out there, but there are many, many more microbes that are just going along, doing what they've always done and helping us make bread, beer, um, kombucha and yogurt.
Well, we've run out of time again on Locked in Science. Uh, we can now have a little bit of time to finish off our experimental wine. Um, I hope you've enjoyed Cheers. joining us Cheers. for our exploration of <laughs> wine and bread, which, you know, let's, they're, they're, they're two of the you know oldest things that people still eat, really, which is... Um, yeah that's true Um, so thanks for tuning in Uh, as we have mentioned every week we are usually recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne but at the moment we are in our own homes putting together the half hour of science radio you've been listening to we are broadcast across the country on the community radio network with the Uh, financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to contact us, you can email us. We are lostinsight at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook, Lost in Science on 3CR, or you can find us on Twitter. Or you can just tune in again next week when Chris, Claire and Stu get locked in, in science. <laughs> Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.